everyone. Welcome to episode 313 of the podcast devoted to the classic and, well, sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. I want to welcome you to Monster Kid Radio, and I want to do that with the song Shark Zone. It's from the album Uncontrollable Waves. It's from the surf band Culebre and the Evolution Surf School. They're out of Argentina, or you can find them on Facebook or Bandcamp. They gave us permission to play the song on the show this week. I chose this one specifically because it's called Shark Zone, and there's a lot of shark movie allusions made during this episode because Scott Morris and I are going to be talking about the movie The Car, which has more than a few Jaws riffs in it. The Car is from the 1970s, and Scott and I have been wanting to talk about The Car for quite some time, but we had to get through the Planet of the Apes movies first. We did. Scott's back. We're going to talk about this film. But first... We have some feedback, some emails. This one comes from Alan Trump. This email is about last week's episode where we talked about the movie Bride of Frankenstein. Hello again, Derek. That was another informative and entertaining episode that you and Court Psyops did on Bride of Frankenstein last week. I did want to comment on one unusual aspect of the movie that always impacts me every time I watch it. The St. Louis Kate, the St. Louis KPL. Uh, is it St. Louis or St. Louis? I. You don't have to correct me on that, Alan. Anyway, the TV channel, KPLR Channel 11, late at night on Saturdays, used to run the old Flash Gordon space opera serials, which I watched religiously. And Bride of Frankenstein and the original Flash Gordon share a lot of the same music. So every time we hear that, ba-ba-ba-ba and Bride, my own Abbey normal brain keeps expecting Flash, Gail Arden, Dr. Zarkov, and even Ming the Merciless to come storming into the room. I wonder if any other monster kids have this problem. Oh, and by the way, I don't know if I ever saw my mother laugh so hard as when Una O'Connor showed up in Bride and the Invisible Man. Great fun as always. I'm looking forward to the upcoming shows that you mentioned. Have a good week, Alan. I have to admit, and I am so bad at this, I always say I'm going to dig into these more and I never do. I have woefully underserved the serials. I, I have quite a few serials in my collection. I've had listeners send me serials. I find them online and I, I love them. I'm a big supporter of the Serial Squadron and what they do over there, but I still have not watched nearly as many as I should. I've made it through most of what I have here. I don't think, though, I've watched any of the Flash Gordon serials, but now I'm real curious. These days, I'm not really a big fan of repurposing film music for one film for another film. I really struggled back when I was still caring about zombie stuff when The Walking Dead played some music from the film Rabbit Proof Fence or the first season of American Horror Story using like Bram Stoker's Dracula score and things like that. I'm just not a big fan of that. However, back in the day, I understand a lot of it was just considered library music and that's just kind of how it was. And for whatever reason, I don't have a problem with that. Maybe it's the black and white film lover in me or, or, or something. I don't know. Anyway, the Flash Gordon serials, I'd be real curious to watch those and, and just see what the vibe is when that Franz Waxman score kicks in. So if there's a particular serial or, or episode that you would recommend, Alan, I'm all ears, man. We had another email come in from Joe Iden. Hey, Derek. Hands down, I think Bride of Frankenstein is one of the best sequels of any film genre. And that's just not me saying that. I've read many film scholars over the years say the same, and I tend to agree. I think all the performances are better here than the original Frankenstein. Maybe the actress are just more comfortable in a familiar role. I'm not sure. Karloff as the monster is at his best. Although his performance in the original and in Son of Frankenstein are fantastic, 
I really think here he shines. Ernest Thesiger as Dr. Pretorius is just over the top enough to not be laughed at. Colin Clive is again giving one of his best performances. The film also has its moments of black comedy. Again, just over the top enough. I have to credit that to James Whale's direction. The look of this film is wonderful. The cinematography is one of Universal's best for the time. Again, thanks to James Whale. Franz Waxman's score is dead on with lots of dread and at times quirkiness for each particular scene. Love the score for this film. And the final scene, when we finally get to see the bride, is one of my favorite of all the Universal monster movies. The way she shuns the monster in almost repulsiveness, the way Dr. Frankenstein takes her gently by the hand and almost dances her across the floor away from the monster, the sheer heartbreaking sadness of the tears in the monster's eyes. This is one of Universal's best scenes in any of its monster films. After listening to your show, I did indeed go back and watch Pride again. I was reminded why I always said this is my favorite, but not too far behind the original. Another great episode of MKR. By the way, I was wondering if you knew if Universal considered this a B-movie at the time. I can't imagine they did. There just seems to be way too much top-notch talent for it to be considered a B-movie. One more thing, this month marks the 82nd anniversary of the film, and that's got to be a film director's dream to be talking about his film 82 years after it opened, as well it should be. And then as we're talking about The Land Unknown, I'm in. Thanks for the offer. Let's work out of time. Talk to you soon. Joe Iden. Joe is the man behind the Fandom Radio podcast. You can check him out over there on Podbean or iTunes, various podcatchers you can find him. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to that. Joe, uh, I'll be in touch with you probably within the next week or so. Had some personal things happen uh, this past week, and I haven't had a chance to catch up on personal emails or show invites. Uh, getting back to Bride of Frankenstein, yeah, man, it's really one of the best, one of the best sequels of all time if not the best, although I'm a big fan of Revenge of Frankenstein from Hammer as well. Funny how they're both Frankenstein films. The music, gorgeous. Colin Clive, I don't think gets enough attention or appreciation. Yeah, he's a great Dr. Frankenstein. It's just too bad that when you start thinking about classic horror, Cushing outshines him because he did it so much more and he was just over the top and probably more accessible because those films are in color. But Clive himself as an actor, fascinating individual from what little I know of him and just he's so good. He is really, really good. The man had his demons and I think, you know, without that, we probably have even more amazing performances from him. Karloff can do no wrong. Ernest Sessinger, just so brilliant. I can't remember if I talked about this with Court or not. One of the things that I do because I'm a big old monster kid who has access to YouTube. One of the things that I do is go through YouTube and just look up universal monster stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of review sites out there and a lot of trailers. I mean, I play a lot of the trailers here. But every once in a while, you'll find like a music video that somebody's cobbled together using somebody else's song and clips from universal monster movies or a montage, that sort of thing. And there was a few years ago when I found one that just celebrated all the monsters of universal. And what I really liked about it, one, they included a scene from Universal's Phantom of the Opera, the 40s version, and they made it black and white so it would fit in with the rest. But Dr. Pretorius does make an appearance in there as well. And rightly so. When you look at the classic horror, especially from the 30s, from Universal, Dr. Pretorius is a figure that looms large over so much. Without him, there would have been no bride. He, Dr. Frankenstein would have washed his hands of the whole thing. Frankenstein's monster might have still been found somewhere and done some other things, but we just wouldn't have the story as we have it in Bride. Did Universal consider it a B-picture? Probably not, although I'm not 100% sure on that. The impression that I get, just based on the reading that I've done, and there's a lot more reading that I need to do, Universal did not treat their horror properties 
in the 30s as this B-movie material, this fodder for the kids, that sort of thing. It's interesting when you look at the 30s and the 40s and the 50s to see that transition, especially from the bigger studios. In the 30s, they're making these big productions, big budget, big colossal sets, epic scale And then you get to the 40s and you start to see that transition happen. Yeah, you've got some things like The Wolfman that may or may not still be considered a entertainment, but you start to see that that dip. I don't want to say the word decline because I love the B-movies and I think there's a lot to enjoy in a lot of these movies. But let's say you compare the first Mummy movie, which featured Karloff, to the other Mummy films, which had a completely different Mummy, different actors, if you don't count the stock footage from the first film being used a couple of times in The Mummy's Tomb, Hand, Curse, and all those others. Definitely a different style production. And then you get to the 50s, it was all about just getting kids into the movie theater. As much as I love House of Dracula and House of Frankenstein, they're not really at the same scale of Dracula or Frankenstein. It is what it is. So no, I don't think Universal considered them to be pictures, but if somebody else out there knows different, email me and let me know have another email from Mark B. Hey, Derek, great discussion on The Bride. While I love all the Universal Monster films, the first two Frankenstein films are both towering achievements, crossing genre lines as true landmarks of cinema history. James Whale was one of only two auteurs, Todd Browning being the other, to grace the Universal films, and I dare say that his audacity and personal style caused his subsequent Frankenstein films to greatly suffer in comparison. The film is a drama, a love story, a comedy, a fairy tale, and above all, a monster movie that blends all the elements together seamlessly thanks for my favorite episode so far beast wishes mark b wow favorite episode that's high praise and a lot of it has to do with court psyops being on the show monster kid radio that there are two main ingredients two two things that i need for an episode of monster kid radio to be good this recipe calls for movies that make a smile an amazing guest to come on to talk about those movies that make us smile. If I'm missing one of those two things, the episode's just going to fall flat. And I've been trying real hard to make sure we maintain that recipe. And we'll continue to maintain that recipe for years to come, especially with some big plans I have for Monster Kid Radio this year. That's a tease. I'm not going to get into it now. But again, this kind of goes back to what Joe was talking about with Bride of Frankenstein being this amazing film, bringing all these different elements together. It's fantastic. And I know he wasn't just a genre guy, but how amazing would it have been to have James Whale's touch on other genre or monster films? I mean, he gave us Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Invisible Man, but how amazing would it have been to see James Whale do something with a vampire character? Man, the stuff that he could have worked into that mythology would have been really interesting. The symbology possibilities there? Mm. Or having him do a Wolfman movie? You know, dealing with the dual nature of uh, dual nature? How about a Jekyll and Hyde film? That would have been amazing. James Whale, one heck of a director. I think that's all the email that I have for now, but if you want to contribute to this show in the form of sending an email, you can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com, and I'll include you in a future episode down the line. I said a second ago that uh, I'm a little behind on emails, and those of you who are friends with me on Facebook know that uh, um, our cat Lovey passed away Tuesday night, uh, just just the other night, and uh, she... She was 19, and she had a good long run. She came to us from Alaska when my wife's sister moved down to Oregon to go to school. Uh, she wasn't able to take care of her cats because she's in law school, so totally understandable. So we took them in, and uh, when my sister-in-law was done with school and was able to take the cats back, she, she took one cat and left Lovey with us. 
and, and I'm so glad because, well, I mean, I love, I'm a cat person. I pretty much love every cat out there, but Lovey was an amazing cat with the most gorgeous eyes. And um, over the past several months, she's been slowly declining in health. Uh, again, those of you who follow me on Facebook, Back in October, I was doing a series of Facebook Live videos on Halloween, kind of chronicling the monster movies I was watching that day, just kind of for fun. And at least once, Lovey made an appearance. She was my little movie-watching buddy that day. Uh, she used to sit around and, and watch movies and TV with me in the mornings on the weekends before my wife got up. Uh, she and I would camp out on the couch and watch whatever I recorded off MeTV or TCM. Or, or even episodes of Lucha Underground. <laughs> I, I'd like to believe that she loved Sexy Star as much as I did. But, um, yeah, we, we had to let her go last night. And the outpouring of support and love on Facebook has meant a great deal to me. So thank you so much. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're down one less cat. We still have a couple cats. And uh, we're going to try to find our way with this new configuration of, of me and my wife and two for children so we'll see what happens moving forward but again thank you so much for all of your love and support and condolences it means a lot i'd like to dedicate this episode to our cat lovey who probably had no idea what a monster movie was but it never stopped her from purring away as she and i cuddled to watch one All right, uh, why don't we go ahead and get back on with the show. We're going to get to Scott, and we'll talk about the car right after this. It's a monster marathon. Now all in one gigantic show. Three of the newest and most exciting monster hits, starring Earth champion and protector Godzilla. First thrill to Godzilla on Monster Island with more monsters than have ever appeared on the screen at one time. Then it's the action-packed Godzilla versus the cosmic monster. And finally, the classic Godzilla versus Megalon. All three in one colossal show. Rated G. How often has this happened to you? You're on your way home after a long day when suddenly tragedy strikes. No human mind could imagine the enormous destructive power of this maddened, killing thing. It's the kind of thing which can ruin your weekend. To prevent catastrophe, you need the Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack. This book features extensively researched methods to help you survive a giant monster event. You'll discover which vehicle you should use for making your escape, which method of counterattack is best for specific types of monsters. Hydrogen weapons, capable of wiping cities, countries off the face of the earth, are completely ineffective against this creature from the skies. And what common mistakes people make while fighting back. So pick up your copy of The Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack by Anthony Wendell today on Amazon. You can thank us by surviving. Japanese 
Xerxes paradise, where sensuous maidens offer themselves in ritual sacrifice to his brute embrace. Godzilla has a brain about this size. He is sheer brute force. While Kong is a thinking animal. His brain is considerably larger. About ten times the size of this gorilla's skull. Being instinctive rivals, there's no doubt that they will attempt to destroy one another. King Kong versus Godzilla, heading for their colossal collision. Shattering every obstacle that stands between them in the most fantastic rampage of annihilation ever recorded on film. See King Kong stamp Tokyo into the ground, holding a beautiful girl in his grasp. See Godzilla destroy an entire army. See King Kong trapped by the blazing barrier of a billion volts. But nothing, nobody can stop the great showdown when King Kong and Godzilla meet to fight for survival of the fittest. This is Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. I mentioned this on the show in the past. Last year, I was going to do a month of nothing but 1970s monster movies, genre films. And when that happened, Scott got really excited and said, you know what, I want to do the car. He probably didn't say it quite like that. Uh, but he said he wanted to talk about the car here on the show, 1977. I was like, okay, you're in. Let's do it. Well, the 70s month didn't happen the way that I wanted it to, but we still are going to talk about the car because, well, if I didn't, I don't think Scott would ever forgive me. Scott, welcome back to Monster Kid Radio, sir. Hey, thank you. I, I think I watched the wrong film, though. Okay, is this where you make a Disney joke? No. No, the Cars reference? <laughs> no, I, I, there wasn't orangutans, no gorillas. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Planet of the Cars. <laughs> oh, I'm so in on that. <laughs> oh, man. You know what? Uh, I completely off topic, off the rails. I was on Amazon last night looking at movies to potentially watch, and Planet of the Sharks was on there. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> No, no, no. Anyway, hey, yeah, no, no gorillas, no apes, no uh, Statue of Liberty. Um, yeah. <laughs> Instead, we got James Brolin in an amazing mustache. That's uh, Mr. Barbara Streisand to you. Oh, oh, oh okay. <laughs> a couple of Real Housewives when they were both little, little kids. Uh, a score that has a piece of classical music that. Oh, it's driving me nuts. I can't identify it. I know I've heard it in multiple movies in the past, and I still can't. Oh, it's driving me crazy. And Ronnie Cox. Ronnie Cox, yeah. yeah. 
I'm always surprised on who's in this movie. I mean, this movie that a lot of people don't really know a whole lot about or have heard, but this got a decent cast. Yeah, I don't know much about this film. Uh, when you brought it up, again, it's one of these movies that I've never seen. And uh, yeah. <laughs> so, Scott, guide me through this. <laughs> I have a feeling that you're not going to have the same reaction as watching the Apes movies for the first time. Uh, yeah, probably not. <laughs> Spoiler. You know what? Before we get to the car, though, there, there's a couple things that I want to talk about. Uh, one very important thing that I want to talk about here. With Monster Kid Radio, I've had a couple of people who have been there from the very, very beginning, even pre-podcast. Scott is one of those people. Scott's been involved in my podcasting projects for years. We've podcasted together quite a bit, right? Yes. Yes, we have. Yeah. And it's multiple shows. Multiple shows over the years. I love recording with you, brother. And um, Are you breaking up with me? No, no, it's not you. It's me. No. Uh, What I was going to get at is... Whenever I bring something new to Monster Kid Radio, I typically run it by a few people, Scott being one of them. And when I first came up with, I guess you could say, the Classic Five here on the show, Scott contributed a number of questions. Well, Scott, I've got some new questions from the Classic Five, some new cards. Oh, cool. And I'm going to unroll. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test them on you. Okay. All right. All right. So here is a new round of the Classic Five, some new questions. Scott, you're the first one to do this. You ready to play Classic Five, round two? How many lifelines do I have? Uh, none. It's too early in the morning for that. <laughs> Not here. <it's>... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't afford the, the third phone line. Okay. Budget. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Are right, you ready to do this? Shoot. All right. Here we go. Card question number one. What classic monster movie should be turned into a musical? Wow. <laughs> And if you say Creature from the Black Lagoon, we are breaking up. (laughs) (laughs) You know, my first reaction was uh, Young Frankenstein, but that's already been done. Mm -hmm. That was a a musical. Which incidentally does have better music than what Universal Studios did with the Creature from the Black Lagoon (laughs) musical they ran as a stage show for a few years. Yes, Just saying. Just saying. And then, you know, of course, Planet of the Apes was satirized on The Simpsons as a musical. Really? Yes, it was. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Dr. Okay. Yeah, now Dr. I know. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Yeah. <laughs> so what would be a good musical? Well, Phantom of the Opera has already been done. I'm going to say The Wolfman. Really? Yes. Basically, I could see a scene where the Wolfman in his human form is out in an early evening. The moon is still behind some clouds and he's got sort of a a longing, soul-searching, tender song that he sings to the moon to not convert him into the Wolfman. You know, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. They do have that little song number in the village too, so you can play off of that and build off of that. There you go. Okay. All right. All right. I like that. I like that. Would Lon Chaney sing it? Of course. Who else would play the Wolfman? He's the only one. That's true. That's true. Okay. Card number two. (laughs) What classic monster movie should never, never, ever be remade? Well, I could really... uh... The Wolfman, the musical. No, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) No, I could really shoot down Universal's current plans and say just about any one of their classic monster movies. Uh, I also have a thing against Toho and um, redoing Godzilla because I haven't been happy with any of the modern big budget remakes that Hollywood has done. Did you see Shin Godzilla though? I have not watched that yet, but that's not Hollywood. I'm talking about I'm talking about Hollywood. Um, 
what one should never be done. Manos, the hands of fate. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect as it is. Now, you did hear the question, what classic <laughs> now this is a home of the classic and sometimes not so classic here on Monster Radio no problem that All film right. is perfect as it is <laughs> okay <laughs> card number three who else should have played Dracula hmm who else should have played Dracula did Lon Chaney ever play Dracula the original or Lon Chaney <laughs> the original senior or junior <laughs> junior <laughs> he was son of Dracula he was son of Dracula okay <laughs> How about Boris Karloff? He did play a vampire type character in something, but I don't, yeah, he never played Dracula himself. So, yeah, okay. Because we have Cheney playing a Frankenstein monster, don't we? A couple times. So, I would like to have seen the reverse of that. Do you believe in ghosts? This is the night when fear and horror walk hand in hand. This is Black Sabbath. Starring the incomparable Boris Karloff, the personable Mark Damon, and lush and lovely women, even though one is from the netherworld, a vampire, a burdelac. Black Sabbath, as ancient as superstition, as modern as the telephone. All right, so card number four. What character from a classic monster movie would you like to hang out with for a day? The Wolfman. Really? Yeah, a day, not uh, night. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and the final card, card number five for you, Scott. And uh, I actually stacked the deck because I wanted this one to be last because I thought it referenced how you and I first started podcasting together. What's your favorite black and white zombie movie? I'm going to have to say Night of the Living Dead. Okay. Would you sign your own death certificate? You must before you witness the electrifying Night of the Living Dead and Blood and Black Lace. You must free the theater from responsibility should your heart stop. Paralyzed in fright from the 12 deadly hours of the Night of the Living Dead, where strange, incredulous molecular mutation incites cadavers to arise live from their coffins to devour all human flesh. And the House of Horror, the House of Blood and Black Lace, a chic French fashion salon where seven breathtaking models will find their hideous, diabolical end. Night of the Living Dead, together with Blood and Black Lace, a terrifying evening with the undead. Not Plan 9? Not Plan 9, not White Zombie, but the flesh-eating kind of zombies are still my favorite, so I'm going to have to go with Night of the Living Dead. Sounds good. Well, thanks for playing round two of the classic five one sir. You're welcome. I hope uh, I answered them correctly, or at least sufficiently. You got a passing grade. It's a pass-fail. You pass. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I got a participation grade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, there's no participation trophy. It's a pass-fail. You pass. You pass. But I'm a special snowflake. Sp- uh, uh-huh. Okay, we're not going to go there. Anyway, the car. Evil has visited the earth in many forms. Now it returns as the car. Car. 
There was no driver in the car. The car possessed. I know why he didn't go into the cemetery. The ground was hallowed. enjoy movies where vehicles are possessed or come to life or something like that. And it really started, and, and I joked about this earlier um, before we started recording, it actually started with Maximum Overdrive. It was one of the first ones that I saw, even uh, before I saw Christine. Did you see Maximum Overdrive in the theater? Yes, I did. Wow. Original run. Original run. Wow. Well, not that it's ever had an official re-release, I'm sure, but wow. <laughs> yes, I saw it in a the theater. I had read Trucks, the short story that it's based on, and I really liked the idea of vehicles and things that we take for granted every day coming to life and terrorizing us. And that film led to me looking up other films, trying to find more information. It, it was a lot harder when Maximum Overdrive came out since... The internet didn't exist. Mm -hmm. In the years follow, I have found the car. I found Killdozer. Oh. Uh, <laughs> uh, obviously, Christine. Duel, which you can argue that the tanker truck is possessed because you never see a driver. Mm -hmm. It's also led me to my mother, the car, because I wanted to see what, if, what that was about. <laughs> this has always fascinated me, this type of, of film. Okay. And with the car, then you did not see it theatrically. You, you... I did not see it theatrically. I saw it, I think the first time I saw it was probably late night, might have been uh, Sammy Terry. It might have just been late night uh, television mm -hmm. and was fascinated by it. I, I love the look of the car. Oh, it looks great. It is especially head on when, when you look at the grill with the sunken headlights and the way the fenders make it look like it's scowling. Mm -hmm. It's amazing look. George Barris, the king of car customization for TVs and movies, worked on this car. It is amazing. But I love that. I loved its horn sound. Once you hear it once, it's stuck in your head forever. Yeah. And while, granted, the movie is, it's not that good. 
the, the there's a lot of cast that you know I see this and I'm like oh I saw him in RoboCop or I saw him in Beverly Hills Cop later or something like that you know it's it's got a lot of actors I recognize it's got a lot of scenes that I really enjoy with the car you know racing around I also like the whole this car is evil possessed by is it the devil more than just it's just something going haywire. So this movie, I saw it really early. It's not very gory. It's not very, I mean, it, for a 70s movie, it doesn't have a whole lot of drugs or nudity or gore or anything like that. But this movie just stuck with me, and, I, and I've enjoyed it as a guilty pleasure for years. It's not very 70s. You're absolutely right. And that was something I was expecting going into this, thinking that it, would, it might have some... Uh, some nudity, some 70s gore, some drug use, that sort of thing. You don't get a lot of that. Now, I watched this as hosted by Sven Gulli. That's how long this has been in the works, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> because when this first came up, between Scott and I, I, I found it hosted by Sven Gulli. It was actually on MeTV, and I was shocked that he was going to be hosting this for MeTV because typically he does the the more classic universal stuff or the occasional like Star Trek thing when Star Trek had his 50th anniversary. But hey, usually, this is classic universal. It is universal, but typically he doesn't <laughs> go to this era. You know what I mean? Yes, that, the, the, I agree. The deal he has with MeTV, the, the rights they have is to do the universal package. So you see, you know, the Lon Chaney, so the Ghosties of Frankenstein, see occasional Hammer film that Universal distributed, that sort of thing. There was a small period there where he was doing The Car, uh, The Boy Who Cried Werewolf, a handful of the, <laughs> that's S, 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 S. Yeah. There was a handful here, and it seemed like it was all during one month, if I remember right, maybe during the summertime last year. I don't remember exactly. I DVR'd all of them, and then I've been sitting on them ever since because I knew we were going to be doing the car. I finally watched it that way, and even though this, for a 70s horror movie, it is pretty inoffensive, there are some things that were kind of cut or blurred out uh, when the hitchhiker gives the car the finger. That's digitized. It's all you know, kind of blurred, so you can't see it. And a few times I could tell through my trained podcasting ears <laughs> uh, that some lines of dialogue were either completely just cut out or replaced with a line of dialogue from elsewhere in the film that was less offensive. And I, I don't know if that was a Sven thing or a MeTV mandate, uh, but there are a couple of things in here. Just a couple. Well, the film is originally rated PG. Yeah, it was a different time, man. Granted, it was a different time. So it was Jaws. <laughs> Exactly. And Poltergeist even in the early 80s, but anyway. <laughs> or The Beastmaster, where you got full-on nudity. Anyway. Well, I watched the new uh, Shout Scream Factory Blu-ray that mm -hmm. came out recently, and there is no nudity in the film. No, there's not. There's very little offensive language. There is the one middle finger that you see, but really... There's not a whole lot that's preventing this film from showing up on regular television. Looking at today's climate, you could get away with showing pretty much this on TV uncut, I, I believe. The Svengooli presentation was a mix of older Svengooli clips and the newer Svengooli clips. Uh, he even makes a point of that at one point in the presentation during the horror hosted bits that you're going to see parts from you know, previous Svengooli shows. And you can tell what's the early Svengooli not just because of physically he's a little bit different, but he's still doing the real the accent, the, the fake accent that he used to do, yep, and, yep. and now he doesn't. So you can kind of tell what's what. So I'm wondering if 
one of the jokes that he makes in that regarding somebody giving the finger is from an older episode of Sven before they had to deal with me TV. I don't know, but there's really nothing too offensive in this. Not, not so unoffensive that Kenner didn't actually pull the trigger on the car game they were going to put out. <laughs> I wondered if you were going to go there. Oh yeah. I knew about that for a long time because I follow the plaid stallions blog and I listened to their podcast and several years ago, they showed this on their blog, this ad. I've got it up on my screen right in front of me right now. Yeah. Yeah, it says players spin, placed obstacles in the car's path, add more and more, and the car makes its deadly run. Don't get caught in the car's deadly path. <laughs> Ages six and up. <laughs> the the kids in there look like they're having way too much fun with a satanic car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if I found one of these, I would buy it in a heartbeat. Oh, it was never released, though. <laughs> From what I, I know, yeah, they pulled from, the plug on it, and they're saying because the car just didn't do very well theatrically. But I don't know if this game would do very well theatrically. Although they did do a game kind of sort of based on Jaws, and I had that growing up as a kid. And Jaws thematically has some similarities to the car. I don't know. Well, I, I'll get into into Jaws and the car in a minute, but I do have one more question. Yes, uh, about when you saw it via Svengooli. Was the opening quote from Anton LaVey pleasant, present? Pleasant? Was it pleasant? pleasant. <laughs> it wasn't pleasant. Was, was it present? And yes. that surprised me a little bit. I figured that would get cut off. Nope. It was right there, front and center, and uh, I wasn't expecting it. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's, um, that's the Church of Satan guy. Yes, he's the leader of the Church of Satan. Who, in the 60s and, and especially in the 70s, from what I understand, did get involved in some Hollywood stuff, was a consultant on a handful of movies. And to have this quote turn up in here, I don't think he was involved in the film at all. And this is an actual quote from the Satanic Bible. But yeah, just wow. Didn't expect to see that there. And you've mentioned Jaws a couple of times. Well, you started it before we started recording, but yeah. Well, (laughs) on the Blu-ray, there is a... um interview with the director, Elliot uh, Silverstein, okay, who was given the mandate from Universal after Jaws was such a success, we want Jaws on the land. Didn't somebody say, but we already have that? It was called Duel? <laughs> that did not come up, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that's where this started, is they wanted Jaws on the land, but unfortunately, they told him we want it in the desert. We've already scoped out. We're going to do it in Utah. Okay. And he was not too happy about that. He um, realized that in the desert, you're going to probably have a lot of your scenes during the daytime. And he wanted to follow a similar progression that Jaws does where you don't see the the shark. I mean, granted, mm, okay. granted, it was because it didn't work, but in retrospect, that worked really well for that film. So he wanted to follow a similar path with the car. Okay. And the first few kills that you see is out in daylight, but then there's a scene at night where the uh, the sheriff is run down, and then there's a scene later at night, which in this interview, uh, Elliot Silverstein says it's his favorite scene because you can't quite tell that it is the car, even though it's so far in the movie that you know it is the car. Right. But if you saw this early on, you wouldn't know the full story of what's going on about this evil car, if it's just maybe a drunk driver or something else. Okay. 
But yeah, he was told that, you know, Universal said, we want Jaws on the land. And that's where the car started. Okay. Well, I can certainly see that. (laughs) Front and center. I can certainly see that. I mean, all this movie really needed is you have some grisly old car collectors show up about halfway through the film saying, I'll help you catch that guy. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That would be awesome. Yes. (laughs) That would be awesome. But that's the biggest thing. It needs to be a direct ripoff of Jaws. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I was looking at uh, the people involved in this. You mentioned the director, uh, the writers. There's three people credited with the screenplay. I know very little about any of these guys. And you look up their IMDb, they don't have a whole lot of, you know, one of the writers, he only has 17 credits to him. Right. Which is more than you and I have together, but still. True. True. (laughs) I get the impression from everything that I've read about this film is it was more of a studio mandate. Yeah. Than coming from writers, producers, and and the director. Like like a, you know, work for hire kind of, okay. You guys are under contract, and uh, we're going to make this movie. You got you got eight weeks. Go for it. Yep. Now, that's not to say that they didn't put their best foot forward. I think the performances in this are, are pretty solid. And even if the guy had a problem shooting the car during the day, there is something about that landscape that works for this. Whether you can see the car coming or not, there's just there's something about it that I really liked visually it holds up yeah, there's some awesome scenes i think where you see the the mountains and the cliffs and everything and then you see a dusty road that's coming between them towards the camera and way off in the distance you see the dust being kicked up but you can't see what's doing it yet and that's kind of an ominous view of this getting closer and closer to you and then when they do shoot at night I mean, the last part of the movie, the finale, is in the evening. So you do get the darkness against the dark car. And while that might be kind of the reverse of what happens in Jaws, where you don't see Jaws until the very end, it does start to obscure the vision or the uh, the view of the car in this. And again, I thought that worked really, really well. Yeah, the climax of this uh, film is, is really shot well. Yeah. Because it's out in the desert proper. And I, th- I want to say it's at Zion National Park. Is where a lot of this was filmed. There is one reference to uh, U- actually Utah in the script, a city in Utah in the script. So, I mean, it's, they don't try to say it's set somewhere else. I mean, it is really in the Utah desert somewhere, some small town. Do they ever say the name of the town? Uh, they do. Um, I'm trying to remember what it's called. Um... Well, they do. <laughs> it might be actually at the very beginning, isn't it? Where they've got the hitchhiker in front of the, the sign. The hitchhiker's leaning up against the welcome to uh, sign. Carville. <laughs> no, it's two words. The Carville. <laughs> no. <sighs> I can't remember what it's what the name of the town is. Nah. It's not too important. It doesn't come up again. I'm just wondering if it was maybe set in a real town or if they just made something up. Either way, it's got this kind of small desert town feel, maybe like a 70s version of the town that turns up in, say, like Tarantula or the town they set Tarantula in, something like that. It is the the smallest town in Utah with the largest police force. They do kind of (laughs) have quite a few. Yes, they do. (laughs) So obviously, this was a first time viewing for me. Uh, never had seen it before, and wow, I liked it overall. Okay, I have I have a few issues here and there, but 
overall, I, I really dug it. And in terms of cars run amok type movies, I think it holds up really well. I mentioned Duel, and I think most listeners know what Duel is. But Duel, for, for those of you who don't, Duel, which was also hosted by Sven Gulli at one point, is a Spielberg joint. It's a TV movie. First major project. Yeah. He'd done some TV and things like that, but this was... Well, Duel was for TV. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like TV episodes and things, but this was a TV movie that Spielberg had done. And the first time I saw Duel on VHS, I'd say probably mid-90s, fell in love with it. It is so good. Structurally, there's a lot of things with Jaws <laughs> and, and in this. But Duel is amazing. And I think of all this, of the car exploitation films of this era, Duel is going to be my favorite. Oh, absolutely yeah. adore Duel. I cannot disagree with you one bit. Duel is amazing. I think one of the reasons why Duel works so well is because it is so ominous. You don't know. Is there somebody in the truck or not? And it's also so self-contained. And most of it is the guy in the car and the truck, and that's it. And it's you're, you're following his individual battle. Yep. And there's something about that closeness of the whole thing that really sells the movie. Now, the car kind of takes it <laughs> to another extreme where it does become blatantly supernatural. You do know there's something there, uh, especially once you get to the cemetery scene. Yep. You know, up until that point, well, maybe it's a guy in a car or whatever. But once you get to the cemetery, you realize, okay, there's really something going on here. Now, being the kind of monster kid that I am, it took me about five seconds to realize hey the cemetery he's not going to get in there it's hallowed ground and it took everybody else in the story a lot longer to get to that point that said i really like the supernatural elements of this i didn't mind having that present and so obvious front and center for me i think it worked for this kind of movie oh it definitely works for this kind of movie uh, and that was one of the things that the, the director really wanted in this film and, and and wanted to kind of hide it since he couldn't hide the car he wanted to try to hide what was driving the car, basically? Was it a psychopath? Was it supernatural? And that's why you don't get the the cemetery seem to well into the film. Good on him, because it made it work even better for me. I think if that wasn't there, the comparisons to Duel would not necessarily be favorable. You know, having that set it aside for me made it different. There's a scene later on in the film where James Brolin is trapped in his own garage by the car. Uh, don't you mean Mr. Streisand? Yeah, that's right. Okay. And he grabs, like, one of the longest screwdrivers I've ever seen to it's try the 70s. to— 70s. Yes. I don't know. I don't know what that means. Anyway. <laughs> but, you know, I think it would have been interesting if he would have grabbed a second screwdriver and held them in a cross shape and see what Ooh. happened. Oh, that'd be, oh, now I want to have a scene with vampires and a guy in a garage. Oh, man. Oh, I love stories in which people are fighting supernatural evil, normal people. Well, I love Van Helsing type stuff, too. But you get somebody actually trying to do battle using the tips and the tricks, the crosses, the holy water, whatever, against supernatural evil. I love those types of stories. And I, I like what you just said so much <laughs> because that'd be so cool. And the first time I saw the film, I thought that's what he was doing when he grabbed that really long screwdriver. I thought he was going to grab a second one because there was others hanging on the garage wall. Yeah. I thought he was going to hold up a cross shape and the car would not have been able to charge at him then because it would have backed down from it. Wow. Oh man. Or I could have gone absurd and said if there was a holy water car wash that he gets forced through. 
They take the priest out of the car wash and have him bless everything and then run the car through it. Okay, you know what? I'd love to see that too, actually. I would love to see that in a movie. Wow. Okay, when we're done recording here, Scott, you and I are going to talk about writing a script. 1970s vampire car! Um, Where do we go from there? Uh, <laughs> all right. So I said earlier, uh, the cast and the crew, I'm sorry, the crew, the people who created the movie, the writer and the director, I'm not overly familiar with the music. I mentioned the music earlier. I am familiar with the composer of the film, uh, Leonard Rosenman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard him quite a bit. I've actually got him quite a bit in my iPod uh, right now. Um, I kind of figured you did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he did do one of the Star Trek films, which was probably Derek growing up was my first exposure to him and then starting to learn more about what he had done and that sort of thing. I've collected scores from him over the years, even RoboCop 2, don't judge me. And um, (laughs) I was going to mention his Disney connection. Yeah, there are actually a couple of Disney connections in this film, and that's kind of where I was going with this. But before I get to that, he also did do the score for Race with the Devil, which again is another, not necessarily the same, but there is a car that's involved. So anyway, Disney connection. He uh, scored the attraction Body Wars that was at Epcot. Oh, okay. You're going really obscure. (laughs) <laughs> what were you going to mention? I was going to talk about the kids, the girls. Yeah, because uh, one of the girls did a Disney film, at least. Yes. Now, since we were talking about uh, Leonard Roseman, I'm wondering if that is because he did Star Trek Four, which I think Leonard Nimoy yes. directed that one, and mm-hmm. Leonard Nimoy also directed Body Wars. Oh, I didn't realize that. So I would imagine he brought uh, Leonard Roseman with him. Okay. He's also responsible for some of the music that I've listened to, again, thanks to you. He did the score for Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Yep. That's some good stuff. I mean, the guy, I wouldn't say he's like a superstar composer like a John Williams or a Goldsmith or anything like that. But especially when you look at like 60s and 70s or listen to 60s and 70s, he did quite a bit. Yep. And I like it. And I swear to God, I wish I could place that piece of music. <laughs> da, 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 da. Okay, I could go on for it anyway. I want to know what that is. Darn it. Okay, so this was recorded a couple of months back. And since then, I think I've placed the music that I'm referring to here. I believe it's a piece of classical music that Gerald Freed worked into his score for the film The Return of Dracula, which actually is one of my favorite Dracula films. Highly recommended, highly underrated. Anyway, I think the music that I'm referring to here was worked into the main title theme from that. Gerald Freed, of course, being somebody who was involved in a lot of Star Trek original series, music, and, and just somebody who's a heck of a composer. All right, so this is Derek and April. Let's go back to Derek and Scott and, well, whenever we recorded that. Uh, he also did the score for a TV movie called The Cat Creature, which has come up in conversations with uh, other people over the past year or so. I think uh, Steve mentioned that to me at one point, and even Larry, Dr. Gangreen, has mentioned it to me in the past as well. Not on the show, just kind of in conversation, uh, because it was written by Robert Block and something that uh, I probably need to see because it's got a mummy involved. Anyway. Hmm. Uh, so the Disney connection I was going to make is that the two girls, uh, Brolin's daughters, are played by real-life sisters, Kyle and Kim Richards. Now, if you watch a lot of reality TV, you know them as a couple of real housewives of are they Beverly Hills. I, I can never keep track anymore. I I don't watch any of those. Yeah, I, I don't either, actually. <laughs> but, I, you know, it's kind of hard to get away from the real housewife 
phenomena. Anyway, uh, they were both actresses growing up, did a lot of, of work. And one of them, I believe Kim, was the witch, one of the Witch Mountain Kyle. Kids. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Kyle Richards was in The Watcher in the Woods. Yeah, Kyle Wa- Richards was Watcher in the Woods. Kim Richards was in the two Witch Mountain film. Well, I guess she had a bit in the third one, too, with The Rock, right? Um, that Like I'm a little cameo sure. kind of thing? Yeah, yes, yeah, she did. Yes, yeah, she did. Okay. So we've got a little bit of a Disney connection there, and I love, I absolutely love the Witch Mountain movies. Love them growing up. Also, uh, Kim was in a movie that I would love to talk about with Scott in the future as well. Something called The Whiz Kid and the Carnival Caper, <laughs> which has a Frankenstein monster in it. Yep. <laughs> uh, we'll get to that at some point. Uh, also, I, was it Kim or Kyle that was an assault on Precinct 13? Because uh, one of them plays the little girl that kind of sets off the whole chain of events in Assault on Precinct 13. And one of them's also in Halloween, the original Halloween. So it might have been the same one. Kyle is in Halloween. Yeah. So I'm betting it was Kim in Precinct 13 then. Yeah. yeah it was Kim in yep. Precinct 13. Carpenter must have knew the Richards girls at some point. <laughs> Kyle is also in a movie called The Hungover Games. <laughs> okay. Is this something you've seen? No. I just... Uh, it looks like she's parodying her real housewives because she's listed as housewife Heather. Okay. <laughs> well, I like The Watcher in the Woods, and I think I've mentioned oh, it here I on the show the in the past. Oh, I love The Watcher in the Woods. Yeah. Big, big fan of that. And like I said, I loved the uh, Witch Mountain movies growing up. I absolutely adored those. Yeah, and uh, Assault on Precinct 13 is one of my absolute favorite John Carpenter films. Oh, mine too. Absolutely love that film so much. It probably ranks just behind Escape from New York for me. Really? Yeah, I love Escape from New York. Wow. Okay. Another another Disney Disney connection there. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> oh, I don't know. The uh, snake, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> the last name Walt Disney ever uttered before he exactly. Died. Yeah. I don't know if that's true or not. Is that true? Uh that's an urban legend. I don't know if it's true or not. You weren't there when it happened. No, I wasn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> Boy, we are way off track. So I'm, I'm looking at the Internet Movie Database, trying to get some of this information, right? I'm trying to place which Richard's girl was in which movie, that sort of thing. And I don't spend a lot of time just going over IMDb on the podcast. I mean, we, we reference it, but I, mean, I figure that you guys and gals can look at the movie on IMDb and get the same information on your own. That said, when I pull up the car, you know on the right on the IMDb page, you get a, the user-generated lists. Mm-hmm. The car comes up as number one on... Brad Dharma's list of best exploitation flicks, Machetes, Over-the-Top, Ancestors. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I know you're a fan of the Machete films. Oh, yes. So I thought I'd I'd mention that. Of course, it's up there with things like Death Wish 3, The Pom Pom Girls, uh, (laughs) Werewolves on Wheels. (laughs) I'm I'm now looking at that list, and it looks like a list that I should just start from the top and work my way down. Oh, Frankenstein meets the space monsters on there. Good man. <laughs> oh, Freaks is on here. Black Dynamite. <laughs> wow. So I've always thought that... <laughs> I'm going to bring this back here. I've always thought that you could get away with pulling off a really suspenseful, interesting, isolated desert-type story like this and i think silverstein and company did a great job doing that with this i think there's some there's an australian film where like jamie lee curtis and i think it's stacy keach 
they went to Australia and made a film and they're in a motorhome on the Australian desert and they're being terrorized by something. I mean, you can get away with pulling off this vast sea-like landscape with the desert and be just as scary as something as you have in Jaws. And I think the filmmakers did a good job of that here. I mean, you do have the city, the town, you know, a few structure, man-made structures like the big bridge uh, that the biker gets thrown off of at the very beginning. Why do I giggle at that? Uh, <laughs> but it, it still feels isolated enough to be scary. Well, you've got that whole beginning shot with, with the two bikers. Yeah. It's very reminiscent of Jaws. Because sure. it's it's isolated. You know, you've got the, the girl in Jaws, the middle of the night goes out swimming by herself. Here you've got two bicyclists that are out in the middle of the desert, you know, running through uh, you know, over a big bridge and some tunnels and stuff that no one else is around being stalked by the car where the girl was stalked by the shark. It's very reminiscent. You even have POV shots from the car itself, just like you do in Jaws. So what did you think of car predator vision with the uh, yellow tinted um, <laughs> well, windows? Sven called that vehicle vision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the way that have you seen this Fanguli presentation of this? Uh, no, I have not. You know, it's fun, especially the newer jokes or, or you know the newer segments. With and you know it's new because it's the newer coffin, right? And some of the comments and jokes that he makes are pretty good. At the beginning of it, he's kind of doing it as like a, a used car salesman, a sales pitch, and all the different parts and and features and everything about the car that makes it such a great bargain. And one of them is vehicle vision. <laughs> What what I like about the yellow windows uh-huh. is I'm sure the yellow windows were put on the car to hide the driver. Sure. But then we're going to use that in the shots that you see from inside the car, basically the car's vision had that yellow tint to them. So they, they, they followed through on what you see from the outside and how it would affect from what you would see from the inside. I kind of wish Sven didn't ruin that moment with the opening monologue gag that he did because i would have liked to have gone into that not knowing vehicle vision because every time i saw it now i think vehicle (laughs) vision and i wish i didn't have that running through my head every time i saw it i'm glad that it didn't happen every single time there was a kill right it would have been way overboard which you know i I thought i kind of liked it now i'd have to go back and rewatch the movie and i I will go back and rewatch the movie in those shots is it how to best put this and describe it in a non-visual medium like a podcast. Can you see the car hood in those shots? Yes. It's like they put the camera inside okay. the car. That's what I was wondering is, is did they actually put the camera or did they just put a piece of colored glass in front of the camera and push it on a cart? I mean, cause you could have gotten away with doing it that way. Really? One of the favorite scenes of mine with the yellow vision is right after the car has taken out the, the two police cars and James Brolin stops him, and you see from inside the car, you can actually see James Brolin standing in the middle of the street with his service revolver pulled and and pointed right at him. But you're in the car, you can see that you see the hood of the car, and then you see him standing about 20 yards in front with the gun aimed at him. Yeah, I couldn't remember if we saw that. So, okay. Yeah, either way, I mean, I thought it worked. The the only thing that was missing was a musical cue like you have with Jaws, right? Yep. Because in the first two Jaws films, when you have that kind of POV shot, you know it's the shark because you've got the music playing. And they kind of got off the rails with that in Jaws 3D. But still, I mean, some sort of musical cue, but not that you needed it because you had the yellow tint mm-hmm. and you knew. Like I said, I'm glad they didn't do it every single time because it would have lessened the effect. 
I'm just glad they did that when you see the car from the outside with the yellow tinted windows that mm-hmm. it's consistent. Especially since they had more than one car they were shooting with. Four cars. Was it four? I thought there might have even been more than that. There was four cars that were built for the production. And there's a website called uh, Diecast uh, Heaven that has some great behind-the-scenes uh, pictures from the car and the car being built. Okay. And there's one shot that um, shows three of the four cars sitting together. And two of them, the, the middle car is the hero car. And the ones on the either side were built basically to be wrecked. And there's, there's subtle changes that you could see in this picture because you have time to really stare and look at all three of the cars. In the film, they were just, there was four built, one hero, three built, uh, wrecked, and the fourth one survived, the hero one survived, and it's now in a private collection somewhere. They don't say where. Well, it is a cool car, and I think you already mentioned it, George Barris. Yep. If you want to see this... I'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It's... It's like IBC34.com. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an... Yeah, IBC34.com slash DCHistory.html. Yep. And I, I will make sure there's a link in the show notes to that because I'm looking at that right now as well. And yeah, it's kind of cool to see some of this stuff. Um, I'm not as much of a car guy as you are. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're a car guy. And I appreciate a good classic car. You know, I think... There's nothing I do like, <laughs> and, and I really appreciate George Barris's work. Yep. Really good work. I mean, the man is responsible for the Batmobile for crying out loud. I mean, the guy and Dragula. Yeah. Really impacted pop culture in a, in, in a way that I don't think any other, well, can I say car manufacturer did or car person? did? I don't know. Maybe that's, that's hyperbole, but either way it, it's pretty darn cool. Yeah. The car itself was originally a 1971 Lincoln continental Mark three. And then, then heavily modified. Yeah, and like I said, there's some great pictures of behind the scenes of them building the car here on this website. That looks really good. And uh, also it talks about here that uh, there's only been one collector's 118th scale car released. It was built by Ertl back in uh, 2003. And I would love to get my hands on one of them, but they only made 10,000 of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, right now, uh, right before this recording, I checked on eBay. There's one without the original packaging listed for $100. Wow. And one in its original box for $290. That'll make you honk. <laughs> <laughs> it's a cool looking car. Yeah. When you look at it, when you compare it to something like the Batmobile or the coach, it may seem pretty underplayed or, or subtle. But if you really look at it and consider what he was doing with the angles of this thing. And especially the grill. Oh, yeah. It is good and spooky. And the way they shot it, too, to take advantage of those angles and how low it was and the low roof, I mean, it worked really well. When I was watching this movie last night and looking at the car, I was thinking of other cars from this era in movies. You know, So I started thinking a little bit about... Uh, Death Race 2000 and the cars that are used in it. Oh, be honest. You're thinking about Death Race 2000 because you bought Death Race 2050. No. <laughs> oh, I did. <laughs> but uh, no, I was actually thinking, you know, from this era. And then I remember that I actually had someone, an artist, took uh, the two main cars, uh, Frankenstein cars and Machine Gun Joe's cars, and turned them into Pixar cars cars. What? 
yeah, I've got a shirt that says Pixar's Death Race 2000, and it ah, has those ah, two cars ah, with the ah, eyes in the windshield and everything. And so for a brief moment, I thought, I want to see the car as <laughs> if Pixar did it. I don't think I've ever seen that shirt, man. It's somewhere <laughs> together. i got to see it. And then I'm like, no, I really don't want to see that. Because the Pixar cars have the eyes in the windshield, and if you take this sunken headlights mm-hmm. off of the car being its evil face it would lose something it's subtle it's smart and it's creepy and it mm-hmm. needed to be it, it's not just a black car i mean it has personality an evil personality but it's got personality and, and it's very low and sleek so it looks like it would be even though it it looks like it's built like a tank it can still go very fast and because it's so low to the ground, too, it, it somehow feels even more menacing. Mm-hmm. And they even kind of play with the angles a little bit. There's that one shot where it's pushing the car off the ledge, or, mm-hmm. or off the cliff, excuse me. And the cop, the police officer, the driver's trying to get out. And he opens up the car door, the, the driver's side door, and the car is perpendicular to it and just slowly pushing that car door closed as he's trying to open it. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it's so low to the ground, it feels like it's got a little bit more power, and it just it's a great sequence. Well, there's it's a really good sequence. There's that sequence and a couple others that I get the impression that the car is not only evil and wants to kill, but it's also got a malicious streak to it. It likes to play with its victims. Yeah. Which is ramps the evilness up of the car. It's got the maliciousness, but it also throws a tantrum outside the cemetery. Yes. It makes it more than just this evil thing going around killing people. It threw a fit. It was angry. They baited it, basically. It was not just an unthinking thing. There was real consciousness behind this. Yeah, Elliot uh, Silverstein talked about that in his uh, in the interview on the special editions, that he wanted the car to act like an angry dog when it couldn't get into the uh, cemetery. So it had it running around doing little donuts and then running around the whole thing, just like a dog would do. It felt that way. There was a real frustration in the part mm-hmm. of the car. And you couldn't have done that in a bigger city landscape or a bigger town because the cemetery is in a desert town. There's plenty of room for the car to do that, throwing up all the dust and the sand and the dirt. Just a great, great moment. This film is built with some really great filmmaking sequences. Every once in a while, they're ruined by, in my opinion, by, say, like an overacting police officer or something like that. But overall, the sequences to this are just good. Mm-hmm. Very suspenseful in spots. Can we talk about some of the performances? Sure. Okay, so there are some performances. (laughs) Okay, Uh, we've talked about it. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't feel like anybody really went above and beyond what was necessary. No. I think James Brolin was a good leading man in the 70s, right? Hmm. And he does what he did in the 70s and does it very well. And he carries the film. And again, no, no slight on him. I just feel like nobody really went above and beyond. I think they could have, and there are some moments here where they really could have gotten into some real like emotional depth. There are a bunch of little subplots or sub-stories in this that they really could have sunk their teeth into uh, with Everett and the abused wife. Oh, yeah. Or the situation with it being in the 70s and the unmarried school teacher shacking up with the police officer they could have done a little bit more with that and you've got luke and his drinking problem the yeah the recovering alcoholic who well (laughs) the the events of the car drives him back to the drink there's a lot of things here that they really could have sunk into but yeah they didn't and i don't know if it had an accelerated shooting schedule or, or a shorter shooting schedule or what but 
Yeah, and unfortunately, those, while it would have been interesting to, to dig into, there's not enough of any of those given to us right. in the film. And almost it would have been better if they weren't in the film for as much as we get. Yeah. Especially, I believe, with Everett, the, the abused wife. Yeah. I feel like that one kind of comes out of nowhere. In fact, as I'm watching this movie, I'm thinking, wouldn't it be interesting if the sheriff reveals that he had a thing for the abused wife? Or, or I'm sorry, not the sheriff. Well, was he the sheriff at that point? Yeah, he was the sheriff. All right. So I'm thinking, wouldn't it be interesting if that's the case? And wow, that would be a really fascinating story to, to really either create myself or, or explore somehow, you know, the sheriff trying to save the former girlfriend who's now married to abusive husband. Nope. They, they, that's what happens in this, yeah. <laughs> you know, it happens and then what, it's completely written off. What I would like to have seen, and, and I'm not sure how to do this, right? but uh, there's the scene when the abusive husband, he's bailed out of jail by his wife and his wife uh, is in the truck and she's leaving and he's going to go across the street to the bar as he's crossing the street, the car is in the shadows, turns his lights on, accelerates, swerves around him, and takes out the sheriff. Right. Now, I would have thought it would be really interesting if somehow it's revealed that the car didn't kill the abusive husband because the abusive husband was evil. Oh, okay. I'm not sure how you would do that since the car doesn't talk. But yeah. If they sort of came up with a pattern of it not taking out evil people. That'd be interesting. But yeah, I don't know how you'd do that. But yeah, the, he takes out um, Everett, the sheriff, and that's when uh, Wade, uh, James Brolin's character, then kind of becomes in charge of Littletown's police force. Mm -hmm. Which, I, like I said earlier, I never get a good sense of how big the town is, but it, I don't think it's very big, but they seem to have a lot of police officers. Yeah, a lot of disposable police officers. Exactly. Just, <laughs> you know, people that just... To have a name that happened to turn up. I mean, just, yeah. <laughs> I mean, because at one point they're able to put up roadblocks on every road in and out of town. Which either means it's a really, really tiny town. <laughs> or they have a lot of officers. <laughs> because that officer you mentioned earlier, the one that the car kind of plays with and pushes over the, the cliff, he starts mm -hmm. off at being one of those checkpoints, but out on a dusty desert road somewhere. Mm -hmm. I did like uh, one of the other police officers. I like Chaz quite a bit. And... Mm -hmm. I'm sitting there, I'm watching him, and I'm thinking, I know this guy. I know this guy. It's Injun Joe from the 1970s Tom Sawyer movie. Yep. Okay. That's where I know him from. I mean, he was cool in this, I felt like. A little, little stoic, a little standoffish, but I think that was the type of character he was supposed to be. And I really liked him, too, and I, I could have used more of him and Wade kind of working together. I liked him, and, and one of the things I wanted to make sure we touched upon was... Uh, the use of Native Americans yes. in this film. One of the interviews, another one that was on the Blu-ray, was with uh, Geraldine Kearns, who played uh, Donna, the dispatcher, who was... Um, okay. She's also, she was a Sioux Indian, as along with uh, Kearns. She actually talked about, uh, there's the scene where they're interviewing the, the Navajo, the, the elderly Navajo woman. Right, okay. Geraldine Kearns was asked to write translate the dialogue that they wanted the, the old woman to say oh. into Navajo. So she did that, and they had this really long speech that she was supposed to talk about how she saw the car and there was no one in it and how it accelerated and went around one guy and hit the other. And she said when she finally met the woman 
playing the, the elderly Navajo, it turns out that she wasn't Navajo. She's actually Sioux and did not speak any Navajo. She spoke Sioux. Oh, no. And instead of just having her say those lines in Sioux, because the general audience is not going to know the difference, really. Right. The director wanted Geraldine to convert it into phonetic language of the Navajo into into phonetic so she could say it. Oh, okay. So she's actually still speaking Navajo, even though she's Sioux, but it's it's a little stilted. Geraldine laughed. She said, if someone who speaks Navajo watches the film and they've talked to her, they say, yeah, you can tell that she doesn't know the language. But most people don't know that in it. I think it actually kind of adds to her state of mind because she just saw a car run over a person and maybe she's a little you know affected by that and not be able to speak clearly see i thought that was an interesting acting choice but apparently it was either more and or less than that a happy accident yeah there we go that's a good way to put it happy accident but i also think that it was a good move by the director to continue with you know we wanted navajo because we've established there's navajo in the film we're still going to go with the navajo language and, and keep it that way when he really didn't have to do that because 90% of the world's audience watching it is not going to know the difference. Respectful. I mean, I feel yeah. like it was a respectful move and gives it a little bit more authenticity for those who do know, or now people who've listened to this episode of MKR, they, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it gives it a little bit more uh, depth. Yep. Realism. I really appreciated that when I, when I heard that they went to that length to, to keep it, you know, as realistic as they could. I think there's a lot about this movie, especially if you kind of break it down to just its parts that work really well. And a few things that I wasn't expecting. There's there's one big thing that happens in this movie that I did not see coming. The woman who's uh, talking trash to the car outside the cemetery, <laughs> Wade's girlfriend, the single school teacher who inspires nudie drawings from her 13-year-old students. The love interest of our main character, as you said. Yeah. Didn't see that coming. And in fact, as soon as it happened, I thought, okay, you know, they're going to find her in the rubble and take her to the hospital just like Wade was. No, they they haul her off in the meat wagon. Yeah. How often do you see a movie where the main character's love interest doesn't survive? That was shocking. And I talked a little bit about this with Joshua Kennedy earlier this year about a lot of the 70s sci-fi having that kind of downbeat. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, 70s horror also had some of that kind of downbeat ending and the, the things that didn't necessarily give it that sense of hope that you sometimes get in like lady 80s or 90s horror with like the final girl or the final boy in some cases. You ended up with a real downer ending here. The, the people that the main character are fighting to protect or the main characters are fighting to protect don't always make it to the end. And I didn't expect to see that happen. I just put myself in in the sheriff or the deputy's position. I mean, your girlfriend is on the phone with you when she dies. That's awful. That's awful. (laughs) That is awful. Wade, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. And then the car goes barreling through the house. To go back to the the interview with uh, Silverstein, he says that's one of his favorite scenes uh, of the film because he loves the way that that turned out and the way it was shot where, you know, you're seeing her talking and genuinely scared. She's looking at a different direction than we're looking. We're looking out the window and you can see the car coming down the street. You see the headlights cause it's after dark. 
you know, you don't know if that's just a car driving or if it is the car. He just he said that scene is, is one of his favorites of it. It's very well done. And I, I won't say that it's like a scene that makes me happy, but it is, you know what I mean? Because that's, <laughs> yeah. that's, you know. It's but satisfying. It's a very well done scene. A very Again, it's one of those well-constructed scenes that this movie is filled with. Mm-hmm. It's probably one of the best and one of the most affecting and if Wade didn't have those two little girls, man, he could have spun off in a completely different way, the way mm-hmm. he handles the car at the end. Like, I could have seen him, you know, going out in a blaze of glory against the car if he didn't have those two little girls to fight for. Sacrificing himself to make sure it doesn't take out anybody else in the town. But yeah, he still has the girls to, to fight care for. for, to fight yeah. for. I did like, you know, earlier I was saying that there are little moments here and there that I would have liked to have seen fleshed out more. You know, the abusive wife, such the story there and that sort of thing. I liked the relationship between Wade and his girls. Mm-hmm. I felt like in just a few deft strokes of storytelling and direction, we knew what their relationship was like. We knew how much he loved those girls and the girls loved him, how much they probably would have been okay with the unmarried school teacher becoming you know, new mom, I guess, or stepmom or something. Uh, just the way he interacted with them the pet names that he has for them. Come here, you turkeys. Yep. You know, just in a few moments, we suddenly understand exactly what their relationship is like. And I loved that. I genuinely believed he was their father. Even though he's a single dad raising two girls and apparently mom is divorced, right? I mean, divorced where she left. It happened in recent enough history that you know, the two little girls, one of them's pretty young, still remembers them. So it's it's not like something that's so long ago. He still has it together. And he's doing a really good job. Mm-hmm. Granted, he probably could have worn a motorcycle helmet a little bit more. <laughs> I'll wear it twice tomorrow. Yeah, I'll wear it twice. <laughs> it is the 70s after all. But he does make the girls wear the helmet when yep. he puts both of them on his bike and rides around without a shirt. Um, <laughs> Speaking of the whatever. helmet, did you notice at the climax of the film he is wearing a helmet? He is, yeah. <laughs> I did. And again, it was a nice little callback. Yep. And I think there are a lot of moments in this movie that that work really well. It's not just a killer car movie if you really start to look at it. And then it's a killer car movie. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and the way it ends with that big bellow of flame and fire and the face and the flames and all that, I was pretty satisfied with it. Back to the that director's interview, what he wanted out of the fire was a claw. And there's one part, he said, it didn't turn out what I wanted, but you can still see a claw in there. He said, obviously with CGI today, we could have made that much better. But uh, I thought it was really well done. They should make the car special edition. No, no I'm kidding. No, <laughs> no. And you couldn't remake this movie now without oh, no. really messing it up. No, and I don't want them to, to remake this movie. No. No, no. So, so should that have been your answer in the classic <laughs> five round two? Do not remake this. Do not yeah. remake this movie. <laughs> Overall, though, I'm glad I really watched it. Is there anything else you want to talk about? I know when we started recording at the very beginning of this, or excuse me, before we started recording, you mentioned uh, a connection to one of my favorite TV series as a kid growing up. <laughs> yeah, one of the things I found out while I was uh, was looking at this film is some of the ways and connections to uh, other things. And there's a couple that I want to mention. And the first one is Knight Rider. There's uh, a couple of episodes where Carr shows up 
In one episode, there is, or two episodes, there's a car uh, that falls off the cliff, and it's actually film uh, shots from this movie, where the car falling over a cliff. I think it's the police car. And then uh, also the engine noise of car is taken right from the engine noise of car here. And uh, also, in uh, if you remember, there was an episode of Knight Rider called Goliath. Yep. Goliath's uh, horn is the car's horn. Oh, really? Yep. Oh, man. See, I loved Knight Rider growing up, and I loved when there was another like bad vehicle for him to fight, like car. And I do remember Goliath very well, because <laughs> I loved <laughs> Goliath. Wow. And the other one I wanted to mention, I think Matt Groening is a fan of this film, because okay. he's made reference to the car in both The Simpsons and in Futurama. Oh, in one of the Halloween episodes of The Simpsons, uh, there's a quick shot of Marge driving the car. <laughs> okay. And then my favorite one in there's an episode of Futurama called The Honking, where <laughs> <laughs> it's basically a, a, a parody of The Howling, the werewolf movie. And Bender gets bit. And instead of turning into a robot werewolf, he turns into a robot killing car. And he looks just like the car, except for he's gray, his color. Nice. <laughs> Earlier, I talked about the Shout Factory Blu-ray. I just wanted to touch on that a little bit. Sure. Uh, it looked great. It's the best I've seen this film in a long time, because I had seen, I had DVD and you know recordings, and I think the Blu-ray looked amazing. Uh, the extras, there's three... Uh, interviews. I've been. I've made reference to two of them: the director Silverstein and uh, Donna, the dispatcher uh, Geraldine Kearns. Uh, they also interview uh, Melody Thomas Scott. Okay. Uh, she is the female bike rider at the beginning of the film. Oh, okay, okay. And uh, the name of the interview with her is called uh, uh, "Like Riding a Bicycle." <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> but uh, she tells this great story. Uh, she was on, on set for like 12 days. Okay. And uh, for the scene where she's at the bottom of the cliff, they've got her all made up. And she said like part of her cheek is hanging off and the cheekbone is exposed. And, you know, she's just really gruesome. And so she was all made up, but they weren't ready for her yet. And like we said earlier, they were at Zion National Park. So she decided they were really close to some public restrooms. So she walked down to the public restroom, got in one of the stalls, and waited for some people to come in. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and she walked out of the stalls in the, looking like this. And they were like, oh, honey, are you okay? And she said, oh, I just fell. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so there's some people out there that you know visited the park in the 70s that got a really interesting experience. <laughs> Uh, also on there is the original theatrical trailer. Unfortunately, it was not cleaned up. Uh, there was a, a TV commercial and several radio spots. I had a hard time finding a lot of posters and promotional material for this. I found more listings for it being in a TV guide than anything else. Yeah, that, that was the other thing that was on the disc. There is a still gallery of promotional materials, tons of lobby cards, the original theatrical poster, uh, the, the picture of the car, the game is in that uh, still gallery. 
There's okay. a lot of that stuff on the Blu-ray. And there is an awesome, uh, and I'll have to send you a link to it if you haven't seen it, the Japanese movie poster for this is amazing. I have seen that. That is one of the posters that I was able to find uh, for this. You know, listeners know that I like to try to take the movie poster and and take out the name of the movie and put in Monster Kid Radio and the style of the font and all that. And I tried real hard to find a good full-size image of the movie poster of this so I could do that for the episode art for this episode. I couldn't find anything really big without digging too deep. I found a day bill from, I believe, either a UK or Australian release. That's what I ended up using. But I did see the Japanese poster. And wow, it's really cool. Yeah. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well because it's pretty awesome. I wonder how this did overseas. I always wonder about these smaller movies, and I assume this one was a smaller movie, not a huge budget. I always wonder about how these movies did overseas, if they did better over there versus over here. I know a lot of horror movies tend to, at least recently. I don't know, back in the 70s, if that was the case. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, like I said, I watched the Shout Factory Blu-ray. Arrow also put out a Blu-ray. It's Region B, I believe, which is the UK. Uh, The biggest difference that I found with it is that the Arrow version actually has a director's commentary. Okay. Along with it. Now, if you watch the director's interview, you get the impression that Elliot uh, Silverstein is not a very forceful, not a very outgoing person because he doesn't really t- want to talk too much about what he's done. He's kind of um, a little meek, I guess is the word I'm talk- trying to get to. Okay. Because, because he talks about, you know, we wanted to do this. Now, if we'd have done it today and had the CGI, it would have been a lot easier, but we just tried to do the best that we could. I mean, he, he says in a in a 12 to 15 minute interview, the phrase is, we did the best we could and it would have been better with CGI at least five or six times. Wow. So he's he's not one that really wants to talk a whole lot about what he did. Now, on this Arrow Blu-ray, they do have... an. Uh, the feature-length commentary, but uh, they hired a interviewer to be along with him because they knew he wasn't one that would come up with stories on his own. Oh, okay, okay. So from what reviews I've read, there's a couple of times where the interviewer gets frustrated with the being the interview and, and asks some really pointed is not the right word, but very forceful trying to get to certain things. Um, because there's one of the things in the film, every time the car shows up or right before, there's a lot of wind. And right. so one of the examples I saw is he was asking the director, was there a lot of wind in Utah? Because he wouldn't talk about the wind. And he's like, no, we had fans. And that's it. Then that's it. <laughs> so I'm not sure if it's something I would really want to trek down and listen to. <laughs> okay. But it is out there. So over the course of the last five minutes, I both added and then removed something from the list of things I might get out for Christmas this year. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, I've got the Shout Factory or Scream Factory. I forget which. I think it's actually Scream Factory version, and I'm very pleased with it. I think the picture is really good. I think there's a soundtrack album, and it's something that I would like to get my hands on. Have I mentioned within the past half hour that I'm a soundtrack collector? I, I typically do that on this show. I just want to make sure I, I get that in. <laughs> really i did not know that yeah 
I did like the car quite a bit. I think there's a cheese factor. And I mean, you just can't get away from that when it comes to low budget genre cinema, right? There's mm-hmm. always a little bit of a cheese factor. But it's not so thick that you might give yourself some sort of lactose intolerance. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> it's not so heavy that it's going to take away from what this film has to offer. There is a lot to like about this movie. And like I said, the sequences themselves, each individual scene, the bit with the cemetery, the bit in the garage, when he walks in the garage and the car is there, Yep. the terror on his face and... I was right there with him. I was terrified that the babysitter character, the woman character who's watching the kids, is going to make her way to the garage and she's toast. Mm-hmm. And he's yelling at her, don't come in here, don't come in here. And I'm thinking to myself, don't go in there, don't go in there. <laughs> you know, there are some really great sequences in here. And, and again, the car is playing with him because as soon as he tries to bust the lock, the car rushes at him but doesn't hit him and then backs back down. Yep. He's basically playing with him. Scott, this was a good one to bring up, man. It really was. So I'm far, you've been hitting it. I mean, you haven't had any stinkers yet, man. At least I, not here. <laughs> I'm just glad that we still followed through, even though we're, we didn't end up doing the 70s month. I'm glad that uh, we stepped way, way out of uh, MKR's normal uh, batch of movies to, to hit this one. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And I think... Well, we talked about this when you were here, and we put you on, what was it, episode 299? Well, whatever. 300, wasn't it? Did, did I include that in 300? I, th- I thought Maybe so. Maybe I did. Yeah, anyway. We will do some more 70s movies down the line. I don't want to get too far away from the original mission statement of Monster Kid Radio. You know, I do want to stick to the 30s to the 60s for the most part. In my mind, the quote-unquote classic era kind of ended with Night of the Living Dead was 68. So anything post-68, I don't want to bring too much of that in. But I know there's still a lot to enjoy. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. And I mean, next, I really want to, yeah. And the next movie that we've talked about doing is from 66, so. Is it? Which one was it? I forget. Fantastic Voyage. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But then uh, after that, we're talking about having you and somebody else on to talk about a movie from the 90s. Yes. So, <laughs> we're all over the map here on Monster Kid Radio. Yep. But so. it features uh, more stuff from the 50s. Yeah. Well, get your hands on this. I recommend it. If you happen to see it hosted by Sven, I think that was a fun way to go. Just expect the vehicle visions joke to be kind of ruined for you. <laughs> I, I want to see that version because I'm a fan of Sven Gulli. I just oh, yeah. have never seen it that way. Oh, it's good. I enjoyed it quite a bit, and I enjoyed chatting about it with you, Scott. As always, always a pleasure to have you here on the show. Now, this is going out in March. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a little while down the line, but let's go ahead and talk about Disney Indiana real quick because you have at this point, by the time this goes out, you're a good three months into the year with this year's theme being Muppet Madness Mayhem. Each month we're going to pick out a separate uh, Muppet movie and um, dive into it and talk about its history. Something a little different, because even though we are Disney Indiana, we like to talk about all the things that uh, the mouse has to offer. That includes Muppets, that includes Marvel, Star Wars. We we like to talk about it all. Miramax. <laughs> Touchstone Pictures, which Who Framed Roger Rabbit was released under. Mm-hmm. We haven't done too much in the Miramax vein. <laughs> that one time when they were releasing a couple albums from Insane Clown Posse. I mean, everything <laughs> Disney. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
Does that mean I can do uh, Tarantino movies on Disney Indiana? <laughs> it's your show, man. You do what you want. It's your show. <laughs> we try to, to we try to stay to the more family friendly things. <laughs> right on. Well, DisneyIndiana.com. I play the promo quite a bit here on the show, and of course, there's a link in the show notes. Actually, not in the show notes. It's actually in the links section of the site. It's permanently there. It's a permalink. Uh, we'll have you back to do Fantastic Voyage sooner rather than later. And that unnamed 90s movie. I actually think we mentioned it in the past, but Justin Giallo knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's right. Justin's, yeah, he's out there listening. He knows. And we also have a few roundtables to get to eventually. Right on. Well, Scott, thanks for doing this. We'll get you back on the show down the line to talk about a few more movies, and then we'll go from there. You know, we need to change this back up, though. I'm starting to feel like I need to start bringing movies to you again. You're welcome to any time. All right. I mean, we we had you uh, with your Star Wars memories, which were awesome. So, Well, no, what I mean is uh, all the movies that we've done on Monster Kid Radio have been movies that you've seen that I've not. So I want to change it back up. You know, I want to bring some monster movies up on the show that you haven't seen. I bring it back. You know what I mean? I miss that. It was fun doing it this way because of Downplace. Right. And I didn't mean to bring that up, actually. I wasn't trying to bring that up. (laughs) (laughs) Scott is one of the master mice minds behind Disney Indiana, one of the premier Disney podcasts out there. DisneyIndiana.com is where you're going to find him and his wife, Tracy. Tracy's also been on the show in the past. And, you know, it's been too long since I've had her on. We need to get her back on down the line. And speaking of getting Amoris back on the show down the line, Scott and I are talking now about having him come back I think in the recording, you might have heard us talk about Fantastic Voyage, and that will happen. That's something that Scott and I set up months ago. But Scott and I used to produce the 1951 Downplace podcast with our good friend, fellow podcaster, Casey Criswell, who you can find on the Bloody Good Horror podcast on a regular basis. Well, 1951 Downplace kind of pod faded, but that doesn't mean it's gone. In fact, I'm considering it as if it's just been one heck of a hiatus. We're going to bring it back in some form now the configuration of that show is going to be a little bit different the format of the show may be just a tiny bit different but it is coming back and as of right now scott and i have a scheduled recording date to talk about a movie from hammer for an upcoming episode of 1951 down place we'll be talking about the film the lost continent that's happening soon so you'll get to hear scott sooner rather than later if if you're not listening to disney indiana and of course you, you really should be Something is watching, something unknown, unseen, the watcher in the woods. The watcher in the woods, hiding in places where only fear dwells. That was my daughter's name. What do you think happened to Karen? I think she's still out there. I saw Karen's face again in the chapel, in a coffin. Something is watching, but it no longer stays in hiding. Betty Davis, Carol Baker, David McCallum, and Lynn Holly Johnson. What did you see? It's not 
Karen outside there. It's someone else. The Watcher in the Woods from Walt Disney Productions. It is not a fairy tale. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the Monster vs. Monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. The Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards voting season is almost over. The deadline for your ballot is April 15th, although some people are reporting the 16th. I'd say shoot for the 15th just to be on the safe side. You know what? I just went to their website. This is the best podcasting ever. April 16th. I'm not going to edit any of that out. I'm going to let you have that behind the curtain moment. Anyway, it's the 15th annual Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. The deadline for your ballot is Sunday night, midnight, April 16th. All you have to do is email Dave Colton. He's the man who runs the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. His email address is T-A-R-A-C-O at AOL.com. Head over to RondoAward.com and you'll find the email address. Here's how the Rondos work. There's a ballot. There are over 20 different categories, almost 30 in fact. Categories like best movie, best book, best interview, best article, best multimedia and a whole bunch of other things as well. Last month on March 2nd's episode, that was episode 308, I broke down the ballot, went through the ballot, and reviewed the different categories that happen to have nominees relating to people who have been on the show over the past year. A number of people associated with Monster Kid Radio are on the ballot. People like Frank Dietz, his documentary, Kong, Long Live the King, is on the ballot. Christopher Armim, his film, Where Skeeto Nazi Hunter, is on the ballot. And of course, Monster Kid Radio itself is on the ballot, category 18, best multimedia. Of course, I'd love to ask for your support by asking you to vote for voting for Monster Kid Radio in the best multimedia horror site category. It would mean a lot to me. I have been nominated repeatedly. I won the Rondo a couple of years back, and you know I'm looking at my Rondo on the shelf. It's amazing, but man, it needs a tag team partner. So if you can support Monster Kid Radio, I'd really appreciate it. Although... There's also one other category that I would literally beg you to vote a particular way in, and that is in the category of Monster Kid Hall of Fame. This is category number 29. I'm just going to read to you from the ballot. Which fans, pros, writers, researchers, horror hosts, or others should be inducted into the Rondo Awards Monster Kid Hall of Fame? Suggest up to six names, and then there's a list of previous inductees. People like Julie Adams, Forrest J. Ackerman, The Blaisdells, Ray Bradbury, George Romero, Ed Big Daddy Roth, David J. Scal, Vampira, 
Bob Wilkins, Bernie Wrightson, Zachary. Well, you know, there's a whole bunch of people on here. Sarah Karloff's in the mix. Count Gore Duvall. Dennis Vincent. He's been on the show in the past. You know whose name is not part of the Monster Kid Hall of Fame? The late Vince Rotolo. He was the man behind the B-movie cast. Now, the B-movie cast is still going, and that's a testament to what he did. Several years ago, Vince Rotolo launched this little podcast that would inspire so many others. He inspired what I did with Mail Order Zombie and especially with Monster Kid Radio. He inspired the Nashy cast. He inspired so many other podcasts out there. Without Vince, I would say that the state of Monster Kid Dumb would not exist the way it does today, especially when it comes to quote-unquote new media. Vince was the man, and he was a super friendly, super approachable guy. He didn't hoard his knowledge. He shared what he had freely with anybody who asked, and it extended beyond podcasting. I mean, the guy would send baby clothes, monster-themed baby clothes, to people who are part of the B-movie cast community when they had a kid. I mean, that, that's, that's amazing. And I can think of no better, higher honor, nobody who is more deserving than Vince Rotolo for induction into the Monster Kid Hall of Fame this year. So again, email Dave Colton. The email address is T-A-R-A-C-O at A-O-L dot com. Write in your vote for Monster Kid Hall of Fame for Vince Rotolo. Check out the other categories, Monster Kid Radio for Best Multimedia in Category 18, and get that email out to them before midnight, April 16th. I'd probably do it beforehand just to make sure that you know, it, it, when he says midnight, it's not like midnight Saturday night or midnight Sunday. Either way, get your ballot in. And I'm eager to see who's going to take home the Rondos this year. It's, it's always a lot of fun to hang out in the chat room to see the announcements of the Rondo Awards. That's going to be a treat this year. And I hope Vince Rotolo's name pops up near the end. Oh, and by the way, you don't have to vote in every category. If you only want to vote for Vince Rotolo, awesome. If you only want to vote for MKR, awesome. If you only want to vote for, well, any of the other categories, that's fine too. You don't have to complete the entire ballot. Only one vote per person. And I assume later in April, if not the beginning of May, the winners of the round of awards will be announced. He usually does it in a chat room over at the Classic Horror Film Board's message boards. And I can't wait to see who wins this year. And I'm really hoping that towards the end, when he's announcing Monster Kid Hall of Fame, we see Vince Rotolo's name in the mix. Do you enjoy movies like Carnival of Souls, The Mole People, Black Sunday, and The Tingler? Do you find yourself late at night reading magazines such as Film Max, Chiller Theater, or Monster Bash? Do you love vintage television programs like Sky King, Outer Limits, and The Time Tunnel? Do you find yourself surfing the net looking for the next monster movie festival or expo? Do you enjoy hearing anecdotes, cinematic details, and unusual insights into some of your favorite movies? If you answered yes to any of the above, you are encouraged to join your host, Vince Rotolo, as he examines some of the latest horror, sci-fi, and cult theatrical releases, new DVDs to add to your collection, and of course, the old classics, both good and bad. He even interviews people throughout B-Moviedom, so tune in to B-MovieCast at bmoviecast.com. So that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank everybody for being part of the show, being along for the ride. You know, I, I mentioned at the beginning of the show there are two key ingredients when it comes to Monster Kid Radio. Good movies, great guests. Well, there, there's a third. 
you know where I'm going with this. Longtime listeners may even get tired of me saying it. It's you guys and gals. Monster Kid Radio listeners are some of the best podcast listeners out there without you guys and gals supporting what I do. I'd just be some crazy guy yelling at my cats about classic monster movies, talking about how I hope they don't screw up the creature from the Black Lagoon remake, ranting about how kids these days aren't watching black and white monster movies, or arguing about whether or not Lon Chaney made a good Dracula in Son of Dracula. You know, Without you listening to the show, no, it's just weird sense of validation. I, I don't know. I, I just appreciate everything that you guys and girls do for me, like liking us on Facebook. We do have a Facebook page, like joining the Facebook group, or even giving us an honest review in the iTunes Store. If you are a user of iTunes, if you listen to the show because of iTunes, subscribe to the show that way. We'd appreciate a review in the store. There, as of right now, we are at seventy-eight reviews. I'm hoping we can get to one hundred reviews. By October, by Halloween. How sweet would that be? Big thanks to the most recent written review from Dos Cacini Jr. Probably mispronounced that. I apologize. But he gave the show five stars out of five and said it was five cups of banana oil out of five. So come on. That's classic. Come on. And and if you don't know that reference, you need to see the American dub of one of the Godzilla movies. That's the second one. Isn't it Godzilla Raids again? He says banana oil. I'm pretty sure that's the one. You're going to have to go back and watch multiple Godzilla movies to find the reference. Darn Godzilla movies. Anyway, if you can support the show by giving us an iTunes review, I'd appreciate it. If you want to be part of the show by sending us an email, monsterkidradio at gmail.com is how you get a hold of us. That way, if you want to call in and leave us a voicemail, you can call me at 503-479-5657. It's 503-4795-MKR. All right, next week on Monster Kid Radio, I'm going to pull from the damaged hard drive that got repaired courtesy of my personal Dr. Frankenstein, cyber Dr. Frankenstein, Tom Doffel. I have a recording with Troy Howarth. Troy Howarth is an author, and he's been doing a lot of DVD commentaries lately. I first met Troy when I had a conversation with him about Lucio Fulci over on the Dorado Films podcast before that kind of pod faded. Well, I wanted to have him back here on Monster Kid Radio proper, and what better way to do that to bring him into the MKR fold than to talk about a Bela Lugosi film, one of the patron saints of Monster Kid Radio. Well, what Lugosi film will it be? 1943's The Ape Man. next week when we get into this poverty row horror classic well you decide come back next week to find out what we decide about the film to hear what we have to say about it until then remember that monster kid radio is a registered service mark of monster kid radio llc all original content of monster kid radio by monster kid radio llc is licensed under a creative commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives 3.0 unported license of course that doesn't apply to the song shark zone that is from the album uncontrollable waves which you can pick up from the argentinian surf band culebra and the evolution surf school you can find them on Bandcamp or facebook 
or just follow the link in the show notes. However you get to their site, though, pick up their album. It's only six bucks for really fun surf tracks and let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. I'll talk to everybody next week. I'm Derek M. Cook. Ciao. (laughs) 